first scripture lesson this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 17. So we are always confident, even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others, but we ourselves are well known to God and I hope that we are also well known to your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast in outward appearance and not in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Our Gospel lesson comes from the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, verses 26 through 34. Jesus also said, The kingdom of God is if someone would scattered seed on the ground, and would sleep and rise night and day. And the seed would sprout and grow. He didn't know how. The earth produces of itself first the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, the plucks he goes in with his sickle, because the harvest has come. He also said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It's uh, like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of seeds on earth, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can nest in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. The Gospel of the Lord. Pray for a moment with me. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts find their place in me, for it is in your word that all life, light, and hope takes root and grows to the glory of Christ. Amen. For the past three decades of my life, better than half of my life, my major source of income has depended completely upon fundraising. Congregations, a better government consulting firm, a free counseling center, church consulting. Well, in each of these activities, I had particular tasks I was supposed to do, uh, simple jobs. The source of compensation for that work came from people who were convinced to open their wallets 
take out money and make a gift to the organization that then turn around and pay me. Now, when you think about it, that's not a particularly stable way to live, is it? Especially when I realize that I'm a lousy fundraiser. We used to call it fundraising, by the way. Then for a while it was referred to as philanthropy management. Uh, that didn't last long, it was then development. Of course, fundraisers don't actually develop anything, otherwise it wouldn't seem so odd, but, but it seemed like a nice euphemism for fundraising. It's a softer term. I'm calling you from your alma mater, from the development office. Isn't that kind? I just got a call from the development office. Sounds like I'm going to be a better person just because of this conversation. I am, after all, spending time with a development counselor. Of course, people eventually caught on, so they don't answer the phone anymore when the caller ID says development office. They figured out that that call does not make you a better person. It's a call to make you a poorer person, and you get little in return. If it were to happen outside of an institutional setting, friends, it would be called begging. I think panhandlers just need better marketing. Uh, they're not begging. They're appealing to you to invest in targeted personal development. Doesn't that sound better? More recently, the term has been introduced, institutional advancement. Now, I'm calling you from the Office of Institutional Advancement. Doesn't that, that sounds so soulless to me? Institutional advancement, it sounds like something that the Napoleonic Army did. It's not institutional advancement, it's not development, it's not philanthropy management, it's banking, pure and simple. The best example of my inadequacy as a fundraiser when I was working as a director of the Karen Counseling Center, a free pastoral counseling center. I'd been one of the associates, I'd come into an opportunity, which meant my full-time job ended, and I was looking for work, and they said, you know what, we're going to name you director, and your major job, and the term of art at the time, was development. You're going to fundraise. You're going to go door-to-door -door and beg for the counseling center, which I did. In five years, I gave talks at literally hundreds of congregations, sometimes reminded the sermon was whining on too long because the organ would play a note to keep track of time. <laughs> I would have uh, presentations that I would give. I would meet with people of means, coffee, for luncheons. And in all of those five years, occasionally one of the wealthy people would pick up the tab for coffee. But not every time. The only place I had any success was with the board of directors who were my boss at the counseling center. They didn't give much money to the counseling center, but I was able to convince them for five years not to fire me. And even though I wasn't raising enough money to cover my salary, it took them five years to figure out that my employment was a net loss. And by being removed from that position, I had accomplished the largest fundraising for the organization they had ever experienced. But still, you're right. Working a job that requires completely upon your generosity by the way, I've now been here more than five years. With these three decades as a poor fundraiser, a mediocre beggar at best, I've learned something about people's generosity. People give for one of three reasons. The first reason, and this is probably the most frequent, is that people give so that I shut up. Here's a check 
glory. It's self-serving, but it's simple and straightforward transaction. It is like my relationship with bagpipe players. How much do I have to give you to stop? It's the kids selling newspaper subscriptions on your porch. You have absolutely no interest in a subscription to knife sharpening horribly, but you buy it to kill them. The church at Piatone needed a new roof when I was there, about $25,000 worth of roof. And after eight weeks of Sunday after Sunday after Sunday saying, please remember the roof fund, the organist interrupted me and said, are you kidding me? How long do we have to keep hearing about this? How much more money do we need? They said, well, Dick, it's about $20,000. He paused for a moment and said, okay, great. I'll put in five if Gloria and Don put in five, and I think Jim will match it. Short pause. Gloria said, I'm not speaking up until Don's going to put in his five. Don's wife nudged him. He finally said, fine, I'll put in five. Gloria said, I'm with you, and Jim said, great, I'll finish it up. We were done. $20,000 in about 90 seconds of time for the sole purpose of never having to listen to me talk about the roof fund again. People give to make it stop. The second reason, people give in exchange for some sense of self-esteem. I want to think of myself as a generous guy, but unless I occasionally do something as generous, I don't have much data for my presumption about being a generous guy, so here's the check. For those of you who've been listening to public radio this past week, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Their standard appeal is, you can listen to our program for free, but that's only what evil people do. <laughs> Good people send us money, and we will even give you a mug so that you can remember each and every time you take a sip of coffee what a good person you are. That's one of the reasons why most fundraisers are in group events. You can't have people watch you give, you're inclined to give less, but if everybody is watching, eh, you better give or you'll be a jerk. So we have big banquet facilities to publicize how good you are in front of a whole bunch of people. We're waiting. It's the same spiel as political organizations and televangelists, to be honest. Give to this cause and you will save your nation. Or give and we will guarantee you a ticket to heaven. Or give and God will cure your gout. If you don't give, those evil people might win. It's all just twisted self-interest, temporal or eternal. You give believing that you're a better person, and the proof is that you gave. At this point, you're probably thinking, no wonder Pastor Jonathan is such a lousy fundraiser. He's too cynical for the job. And you could be right, except for the third way. People give because they understand their connection to the rest of the world. I used to think that people gave as soon as they understood the need. The generosity rose out of a sen sense of empathy about someone else's condition. I assumed if they really understood the need, that they would step up to the plate and give. All done with one presentation to my session at my first church. I had just given them stacks of charts and graphs and budgets, pie charts and bar graphs and depreciation calculations and repair estimates and cost of living indices, all pointing to a thick description 
of the church's precarious financial position. Then there was a long silence. One of the trustees said, well, pastor, after all of that, what do you figure? We'll be closed in about five years. Seems to me no point in putting good money after bad. It didn't work. <laughs> Sometimes casting a clear light on the gulf between reality and need has the opposite effect. The depth of the need is so substantial that your reaction is, I'm not even going to start to try to fill the void. Now, when giving arises out of this third way, it is the connection, the sudden light bulb moment which someone says, I get it. I get it. This is why Jesus spoke in parables. Not because he was trying to be confusing or obtuse, but because he wanted to be clear only with those who got it. The kingdom of God is like a seed scattered on the ground. You go to bed, you wake up, you go to bed, you wake up. After a few days, it sprouts and it grows. How did that happen? The point is, you don't know. You really don't know. It just does. What kind of seed? Well, I don't know. How about a mustard seed? It's teeny tiny seed. But when it's in the soil and water and sunshine and time, it grows, it explodes into branches so big that birds can make nests in them and be shaded by those above. It's the mysterious germination when something in your heart that starts small begins to resonate with your own sense of understanding, a deep connection, not to yourself, but to something greater than yourself of which you are truly a part. Your connection to the possibility. It is when the beggar standing in front of you suddenly becomes transformed in your heart as a human being who is worthy of love, and grace, and dignity, and hope. Because that, like you, is one of God's own children. It is when a congregation is no longer experiencing a middling social club where you give money because it's a place where you kind of see your friends and catch up on news. That also happens. But all of a sudden, it becomes Christ's own body, broken to offer healing, welcome, grace, forgiveness, reconciliation, ministry, without pores with such growth that others come and find rest in its shade and nest in its comfort. It's no longer at that point experienced as generosity. It becomes an incessant necessity that the transformation, spiritual growth, rises out of that sudden connection. You just suddenly get it. And it's not about the form of the gift because it is about the participation of one's own self. It's like Paul said, urged on by Christ's love, because we are convinced that one died, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who might live, live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From that moment on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from only a human point of view. We know him no longer in that way. 
So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old passes away. See, everything becomes new. At that moment, the, the fundraiser, the philanthropy manager, or the development officer, or the institutional advancement coordinator is rendered completely pointless because the people themselves understand it is no longer about money. It is about meaning. It is about purpose in Jesus Christ. Amen.